0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, That is our passage this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And uh, Alex mentioned the business meeting. We hope you can stay for that today. We will have a, a lunch afterwards, like you heard. Uh, never, not, not one to tell you to eat fast, but this, this is the one lunch of the year where we kind of urge people to kind of move quickly through their lunch rather than linger over it, like we usually like to see. Uh, just so we can get to that business meeting. I know there's a couple of good football games today for people who care about that kind of thing. So we definitely want to get to the business meeting and get you home so you can enjoy your Sunday afternoons. But we hope you can stay. If I think i said this a couple weeks ago uh, if you go to one business meeting a year this is the one to go to because well not only do you have access to great soup but also it's it's the annual report we look back we look ahead we go through the budget and answer any questions people have so it's a good one to stay for if you if you're able to do so today Uh, let's get into uh, the word let's pray first lord we thank you so much for your word and how you teach and instruct us we pray uh, as was prayed before just that you'd give us teachable hearts help us to receive what you have for us today May the words of of my feeble mouth and the meditations of all of our minds uh, and our hearts be pleasing in your sight. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is not just a theological concept. Uh, It is the anchor of our faith and the source of our hope. Uh, Those words come from John Piper. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is the anchor of our faith and the source of our hope. Now, if you know Piper's work at all, that doesn't surprise you. He talks about the supremacy of Jesus a lot. But he's not alone. Piper's not alone. Lots of Christian leaders down through the centuries would agree with him about Christ's supremacy. Uh, Billy Graham, for example, said Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. In him we find the fullness of God's love, grace, and wisdom. Max Lucado, to know Jesus is to understand the supreme purpose for which we were created and to find ultimate fulfillment. Oswald Chambers, uh, an older guy from a couple hundred years ago. In the, in the supremacy of Jesus, we find not only redemption, but also the blueprint for a transformed and purposeful life. Or I like this one from Augustine of Hippo. Now we're going way back. Uh, in Christ, Augustine said, all things hold together. His supremacy is the glue that binds the universe and gives purpose to our existence. Well, today we're going to take our cue from those men, and we're going to talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Last week, we we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, that's what you, you get here in the early part of Luke, and we learned that John's mission was to call people to repentance. That's why God sent John ahead of Jesus. John prepared the way for Jesus by calling people away from their sin, calling people to repent of their sins. Uh, And many people responded. We talked about this last week. Many people responded to John's message. For a while, anyway, John's ministry was a tremendous success. He was very successful. Uh, In fact, he was so successful, many Jews started to wonder if John might be the Messiah. Many started to wonder. That's what we're told in, in verse 15. Verse 15 says, The people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the christ and so john you got to picture this john preached with so much power that some started to wonder if maybe he was more than just a prophet maybe he's the one they were waiting for maybe he was the messiah now from our point of view that seems like a silly thing for them to think maybe even blasphemous right i mean john's not the messiah jesus is the messiah we know that uh, but it was actually quite a reasonable thing. They're, they're not wrong to think this. I mean, they were wrong, but they, they weren't wrong to think it. Uh, nobody knew at that point what the Messiah was going to do, what he would be like. They had a few cues in the Old Testament. They knew most of all that the Messiah would be anointed by God. In fact that's what messiah means it means anointed one and and so they knew the messiah would be anointed for a special work and they looked at john and they said well he he seems to take the box he is certainly anointed and so many of them started to wonder if maybe john was the messiah Uh, john however wants nothing to do with this And, and we see this in today's text he denies he's the messiah and instead he he very directly and strongly points them to somebody else uh, someone else is else's coming, he says. Someone who is superior to me in every way. And, and that brings us to the supremacy of Jesus. We have a very simple lesson today. The lesson is quite simply that Jesus is supreme over our lives. Jesus is supreme, and that last part makes it personal. He is supreme over our lives. He's the one we live for. As Augustine put it, he gives purpose our existence. Uh, That's true for us as individuals. We'll think some about that level. It's also true for us as a church, and we'll we'll think at that level this morning as well. Uh, I have uh, two things that I want to accomplish today. The first is that I want to look at how John answered this question. So people were asking him, and rumors were flying, are you the Messiah? And he addresses that in today's text. And, And he doesn't just come out and say, I'm not the Messiah, although he certainly kind of basically says that but what he really does is he instead describes the person who is the messiah and that's what we're going to mine for our material this morning uh he tells us you you don't want me you want the one who's far superior to me and so we're going to look at three ways jesus is superior that's kind of the spine of our outline this morning three ways jesus is superior the other thing i want to do though is i want to connect that this morning the supremacy of jesus i want to connect it to our mission as a church uh, you've heard uh, today is our annual business meeting. And uh, like I said, I hope you can stay. But even if you don't stay, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about why we do what we do. I want to talk about our mission as a church. Uh, our mission is to connect real people to the real God. And hopefully, that's not unfamiliar to you. You see it around in printing, and we say it. Our mission as a church is to connect real people to the real God last year our elder board went through a process we got a bunch of feedback from other people on this Uh, we went through a process of identifying four priorities for how we're going to do that right so okay that's great you know we exist to connect real people to the real god but but how are we going to do that what sorts of things are we going to do and we as a board identified four priorities for the next few years of ministry i don't know if you call it a five-year plan if you'd like but uh, for the next several years of ministry, there's four areas we're really going to prioritize in terms of how we approach things. And they're easy to remember because they all start with the letter B. I love acronyms. Uh, they all start with the letter B and they are bring, uh, be, bring, become, belong, and build. And, and I want to talk about those four things this morning. Uh, these priorities are all in this text. But they're not just in this text. They're all over the place in the Bible, right? I could have gone to... probably I could probably go to half the passages in this book and, and show you some way in which we see these four priorities because they're thoroughly biblical. And so that's the other thing I want to do this morning. I want to talk about these four priorities. So it's kind of a two... We'll go back and forth a little bit here. Three ways Jesus is superior and then connecting those to... Four priorities for our ministry as we do ministry together here at Grace Point Church. So so let's look at these verses together. Let's uh, look at verses 15 through 20. All right, number one. uh, The first way Jesus is superior is that he is superior in his person. His person. Uh, John explains this to us. The Messiah When he comes, and and John actually doesn't ever... I'm going to just keep saying it as if John is pointing to Jesus, though that doesn't happen in this passage, not yet. Uh, But John explains that when the Messiah comes, that Jesus is a greater person than he is. That's verse 16. Look what he says. So they're saying, hey, maybe he's the Christ. Some are saying it to him, some are saying it behind his back. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Let's stop there for now. So John says, look, the the one you're really looking for, he's he's not here yet. He's on his way. He'd be here any minute. He's, he's, He's here, but he's not revealed himself yet. He's coming. He's coming, but it's not me. He's coming. But not only is he coming, he's so great, John says, that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. All right, so we're talking about the superiority of Jesus, his person versus that of John. I, I'm not worthy to even get down on my knees and untie his shoes. That's how much greater he is than I am, John says. Now, this is kind of a funny metaphor, it seems to me, especially if, if, you're, if you're a parent or if you've ever been a, a parent, you might wonder, why, why is this... Why does that metaphor work? What, what's, what's the whole deal about tying somebody's shoes? I mean, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you untie little people's shoes all the time, right? You're always down on your knees untying or tying your, your children's shoes. And, you know, I mean, so why, why, what is John saying when he says this? Why, why is that such a striking thing for him to say? Well, the answer goes back to, it's a, it's a Judaism thing, it's first century Judaism, and it goes back to the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples, See, in in first century Judaism, disciples respected their teachers. They respected them so much, in fact, that many times they would enter into what was almost like a servant relationship. They would voluntarily serve the rabbi that they'd uh, pledged themselves to. Uh, They would do things for them, sometimes hard things. Uh, In fact, there was one rabbinical school, a particular saying that taught, just outright taught, disciples should do everything for their teacher that a slave does. That's how a disciple was supposed to think of himself vis-a-vis his his rabbi. There was, however, an exception. There was a, a striking exception. The one thing you never had to do, even for your rabbi, was untie his sandals. They made an exception for that one. Why? Because it was considered in that culture so menial. Because people's feet would get so dirty and you're trodden down the streets where the animals have been doing their business, people's feet would get very dirty. And, and, and so it was considered getting down on your knees and doing someone else's shoes, taking their shoes off or putting them on, was considered so menial a task that you know what, we'll make an exception for that one. A disciple didn't have to do that. He didn't have to get down on his knees and untie his master's, his, his rabbi's sandals. And that's the thing John picks. That's the thing. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. The thing that we've all agreed I wouldn't have to do anyway, I'm not even worthy to get down on my knees and do that for him. John says, that's how much greater he is than me. And then this pops even more when you you put it together with what Jesus is going to say about John later in this gospel. So we won't get there for a while, but in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is going to give John the highest kind of praise. Uh, in uh, Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Talking about John the Baptist. There's no one greater than John the Baptist, he says. Uh, "Well, When we get there, we'll kind of unpack that and see what he is and isn't saying. Uh, but, but it's very clear from Luke 7, 28, that Jesus thought very highly uh, of John the Baptist. He, he saw him, he believed John was one of the greatest men to ever live. And so here's Jesus elevating you know, John's cachet, as it were, and then John says, but he is so much greater than me that I can't even do this most menial of tasks for him. What's the point of what John's saying here? Jesus is superior. Far, far, far superior. Right? He doesn't, it's not here in Luke, it's in the other Gospels, but John knew that he must increase and I must decrease. I have to become less and he has to become more. He is superior in his person. That's a disciple's attitude, and we need to have it, right? If we think at that individual level, we, we need to have that same attitude in ourselves as we approach our Savior Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget myself, and I presume upon my relationship with the Lord, right? We, we, we do that. I think we're all prone to it. We forget sometimes that he's the Lord and I'm the servant, not the other way around and the way to correct that is to is to consciously live our lives each day in submission to his lordship to submit ourselves to his supremacy in in every area of our lives that's the individual side we could think a lot more about that but i like i said annual meeting sunday i wanted to apply this to some of us as a church and to to my mind, it very much drives this first priority, and our our first priority is to bring the good news, right? We talk about these these four uh, priorities. The first is to bring the good news. How does that connect to humility? Well, we're not bringing ourselves. We're bringing him, right? The the height of pride is to forward myself ahead of others. Uh, Well, the, the church's mission is the opposite of that. We're not here to bring ourselves. We're here to bring Jesus, You know, we've got a good thing going here, right? We are very blessed as a church. There's a lot of exciting things, great people, a lot of good things going on at Grace Point. But ultimately, we're not bringing people Grace Point. Ultimately, we're bringing people Jesus, right? We're bringing people Jesus, and we're bringing people to Jesus. It's kind of a two-way thing. Why? Because he's the one they need right? He's the one. He's the one who can change their lives. He's the one who can heal their marriages. He's the one who can bring restoration and other broken relationships, the provision they need, whatever it is. It's him. It's Christ and him crucified. That's who we offer uh, to Atlantic, to Southwest Iowa, and, and ultimately to the whole world through our, our global missions program. We bring the good news. Why? Because he's superior, right? We're not just bringing another somebody. We're bringing Jesus. He is superior in his person. That's number one. Number two, uh, the second way Jesus is superior in this text is that he's also superior in his power. He's superior in his power. That's the next thing John's going to describe for us. Not only is he a greater person, his power is greater too. Uh, Let's keep reading in verse 16. I'll read the whole verse this time. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So again, John had a powerful ministry. I know there's not a lot given to him in the Gospels, and sometimes we short shrift him, but he had a powerful ministry. Uh, He was a genuine biblical prophet. He's Actually, it's one of the reasons Jesus is going to say he's the greatest among men. He's the last old school, if I can say it that way, old covenant prophet, right? And, And Israel hadn't seen one of those in a while. It had actually been four centuries since God had spoken through a prophet the way he speaks through John the Baptist here. And so John had a powerful ministry that way, and and he got results, right? John, when John preached, he got results. People were flocking. There was a revival, right? It was a preparatory revival for the ministry of Jesus. People were flocking to the Jordan to be baptized, to turn from their sins. Yes, some were faking it. We talked about that in last week's passage. But many, many, many people were sincerely turning back to God because of John's ministry. And so John's ministry is powerful, right? That's the context for this statement he makes. Because it's so striking when this man with this powerful ministry says, you think, this is powerful? You ain't seen nothing yet. All right? His grammar's better than mine, but you ain't seen nothing yet. The one who's about to come is mightier. And the word he uses, it's just a word for raw power. It's stronger. He's mightier. He's stronger. He's more powerful than I could ever be, John says. And he shows us this. You say, where do you see it? So he, he says it, but, but where you see it is in the contrast between the two baptisms. So John explains, I've just been baptizing you with water. Right? I've, I've just been baptizing you with water, but the Messiah is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, he says. So contrast, John's baptism, water. Uh, Jesus' baptism, Holy Spirit and fire. Now, let's look about that Holy Spirit, fire, baptism so we understand how it's more powerful the first thing to note is that it is a single baptism. So it's not two different baptisms. Some translations make it sound like it is, and I, I think that maybe even some Pentecostal d- uh, doctrine would take it as two separate baptisms. But grammatically, it's a single. It's, it's, it's linked by the same preposition. So it's not a baptism of, of Holy Spirit and then later a baptism of fire. It's a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. And so, so it's a single baptism. What is it? What's he talking about? What, what is this baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire? Uh, It is, it's salvation, and that's, this is probably the trickiest interpretive piece of today's passage. What's he talking about? He's talking about salvation. Maybe there's a little bit of foreshadowing of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends in tongues of fire, but I, I think the main emphasis is on salvation. These two, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and then what the fire stands for. And so what's John saying? Why is John saying that Jesus is more powerful? John's saying, I can only tell you how to be saved, but Jesus can actually save you. John can only tell us how, but the Messiah can actually, is going to actually do the salvation. That's why he's so much more, that's the way in which he's so much more powerful in this text. And Think about that. Why is that the case? Well, John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. That the baptism was a symbol of the repentance. We talked about that somewhat at length last week. And so he was calling people to turn from their sins. But that's not enough, is it? Right? Mere moralism isn't enough. Just turning away from the bad stuff we do, that, that doesn't actually, in and of itself, by itself, so we have to repent, but repentance by itself isn't what saves us. The thing that saves us is what God then does with a repentant heart. Right? Why? Because we still need to be changed. We still need to be cleaned and transformed on the inside. Uh, repentance takes away the action of sin, but it doesn't address the stain. It doesn't do anything about the stain of sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can purify the sin. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is all about. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes and he dwells within us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit sets up shop. He comes and he abides in us. He lives within us. That's the baptism with the Holy Spirit that John's talking about here. say, what's the fire part? Baptism, Holy Spirit, and fire. What's the fire part? The fire is the purification it's the purification. Uh, in the Bible, when you see fire used in a symbolic way, it almost always has one of two basic meanings. I don't know if there's any exceptions. Take the almost out. There's always one of two meanings. Uh, it's either, fire in the Bible is either a symbol of God's judgment or it's a symbol of God's refinement, right? The refining fire, a purifying fire. In this passage, it's the purification. It's the purifying work of the Holy Spirit because of that linkage with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't come to, uh, to judge us. He's come to purify us. And so that's why it's a baptism of fire. So the baptism of Holy Spirit and fire, or the, with Holy Spirit and fire, is, a, is about holiness. It's about, it's about that initial transformation, that regeneration, and then the purification, the growth, the maturity, the becoming a mature, an increasingly mature disciple in Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. He's burning off the bad stuff and leaving the good stuff and, and create, bringing good stuff as the Holy Spirit lives within us. That brings us to ministry priority number two. Uh, our second priority is to become Disciples. Become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a huge part of what, uh, is, of what our ministry is all about because you know, we, we talk about bringing the gospel and we think about transformation and bringing uh, you know, salvation to a world that needs it. This, this, is, this part is the reminder that this is for us too. Right? We need transformation too. We need the gospel too. We need to follow Jesus because the Holy Spirit wants to transform our lives. And the way he does that is from the inside. It's very scriptural. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and as he lives within us, he's changing us. He's making us holy. He's giving us new desires. He's, he's giving us a hunger for his word. We, we want to read this ancient book all of a sudden. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is working within us. He gives us a passion for his priorities and his kingdom. In a word, what's the Holy Spirit doing? He's making us disciples. He's making us disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk about disciple-making so much here at Grace Point. Right? We preach about it. We, we program for it. We hire staff for it. We budget for it. We do everything we can. Right? We, and we can do more. <laughs> we do everything we can to help people become disciples. It's a core part of what we're about as a church. Number three, the third way Jesus is superior that we see in this text is he also is superior in his purpose. He has a superior purpose. You see, Jesus came to do something. So you've got a superior person, superior power, superior purpose. He has a great purpose. And his purpose, and we can talk about different angles of this, but let's talk about it this way because it comes from this text. His purpose is to gather a people to himself. Jesus is gathering a people to himself. And that's what you see in verse 17. Uh, Let's read verse 17 again. Here's what it says. Verse 17 says, His winnowing fork, so John is still talking about the Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John uses, it's it's another metaphor, right? Big on the word pictures here. This time it's a harvest metaphor, and he uses this harvest metaphor to describe what do you do when you harvest? You gather. You gather. And so he's describing the people-gathering mission of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. Uh, The one who's coming, he says, let's unpack it, the one who's coming uh, has a winnowing fork in his hand. Now, as far as we know, Jesus did not walk around with a winnowing fork. Kind of like a big rake with these uh, tines on the end where you would be able to lift grain. Uh, that, That would be a winnowing fork. And uh, as far as we know, Jesus didn't walk around with one of these. And so it's a picture, it's a metaphor. The Messiah is going to have a winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to use it to separate the wheat and the chaff. So I've, I've, actually, I remember we talked about this back in last summer. If you were here last summer, we, we looked at the book of Ruth. I had to describe this process just to describe it again. Uh, in the ancient world, when you got your grain, after the grain had been harvested and brought in, you couldn't just chomp on it and eat it. You've got to process it. You've got to separate the the edible part, the, the kernel of the wheat from the outer part. Uh, I'm always afraid I'm gonna use the wrong words when I describe this to it. <laughs> All of you know more about this than me in most cases. Uh, but you gotta separate that, that outer husk part that isn't edible, it's really not very, it's got nutrition, no nutrition, so you gotta separate it. Uh, we have machines that do this, but they would do it, it was a, a by-hand kind of a process. They had some simple tools, but mostly it had to be done hard labor. And so you would take the grain that had been threshed or had been harvested, and now you've got to thresh it. And so that involves applying force to it. Um, Many times it would involve having animals trample on it, or maybe people trample on it. It seems to me that would be a great job for little kids. I don't know if they ever did that, but have them dance for a while in the grain. Uh, But the goal is to break it up, to crush up the pieces, to separate the chaff from the wheat. But now it's still got to be mechanically separated. And that's where these winnowing forks would come in. Uh, one of the methods that the scripture will use a lot of times uh, for, for word pictures is you would take one of these long winnowing forks and you'd kind of grab a bunch and you'd toss it up in the air. You, they would do it at the time of day when the breezes were blowing the best and the breezes would carry the chaff away uh, and maybe not really far away. It might just be kind of over into a pile over here, but it would separate the chaff from the wheat because the good stuff, the edible stuff, would fall back down. And after you do that for a while you're able to separate it. And then you can scoop up the part you're going to keep. You can scoop up the grain, bring it to market, bring it to the barn, wherever it's going to go. That's the picture John uses to describe the ministry of Jesus. He's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff. So what does it stand for? What's, what's he describing? Well, the answer, you know, what's the wheat? What's the chaff? Well, the wheat stands for the people who receive Jesus. Right? That, that's how this is going to go. The wheat is the people who receive Jesus and the chaff is the people who don't. It's those who reject him. You can go all the way back to Psalm 1. You see a very similar kind of a metaphor being used. Uh, It's it's a picture of of those who receive versus those who reject. And what John emphasizes in his preaching here is that the stakes of this separating, right? The stakes of the separating are very, very high. So on the one hand, you have have, uh, the the wheat. Let's talk about the wheat first, right? So the the people who receive, they're gathered into the barn. There's that people gathering mission of of the Messiah. He gathers the wheat uh, into the barn, right? And and this is his people. He's he's going to, he's here to make a people for himself. Uh, In Ephesians chapter two, verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus is creating a new humanity. It's it's the same spiritual reality, just with different language. It's a new race of people, right? He's talking in that chapter about the tension between Jews and Gentiles and law and grace. And and he says Jesus has come to gather a whole new new people for himself. He's making a new human race. That's what this metaphor is describing. Uh, Meanwhile, those who reject Jesus, you have this judgment picture, right? They will be burned with unquenchable fire. I said a few minutes ago, in the Bible, fire means either purification or judgment. In verse 16, it's purification. In verse 17, it's judgment. John, John's got both here in this little mini-sermon he's preaching. And so it's it's a picture of, of judgment. And um, I, you could actually find pictures... Um, Sometimes the chaff just blows away, but sometimes it would collect, and the way to get rid of it, if you didn't have some other purpose for it, and you usually didn't because it was pretty useless, uh, was to burn it. So they'd have these big bonfires with with the piles of chaff that didn't have any use. Uh, That's the destiny, he says, of those who reject Jesus. But that's not what God wants, right? That's not what God wants for his people. What has Jesus come to do? He's come to gather the wheat. He's come to bring these people to himself, to bring people to himself. Which brings us to... So with this second one, or this, this one here, this third one, we, we get that bring, bring the good news, so you have that part of our mission. But then there's another layer to it here, which is we use the word Belong. We're also called to belong to one another. So because of Jesus' great purpose, his superior purpose, we bring the gospel to the world and to our community, but we also belong to one another. We become a place where we help each other hold fast to Jesus. If you were here for Hebrews this past year, that was a theme that runs through that book a lot, how we are to help each other keep following jesus why because following jesus and being in this great new people he's gathering for himself it's not a solitary journey right there aren't no there are no lone rangers in his kingdom we we are we are meant to follow jesus together hebrews ten twenty four: stir one another up to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet one another here i am we're meeting together so we're doing it as is the habit of some but rather encouraging one another and so there's this idea that we help each other, right? This people that he's gathering, we help each other uh, to hold fast to him. And that's, that's this idea of belonging. We belong, we choose to belong to one another in the life of the church, in our small groups, in our worship, in the ministries we do together. As we go out into the community, maybe we see each other at a function, it's like, hey, yeah, we're, we're following Jesus together here at this community event or whatever it is, uh, repping him, representing him. There's that piece of community. It also, this, this one also kind of bleeds back to our outreach and in terms of how we think about how we bring the gospel. There's some overlap in these priorities. You'd expect that. You know, a lot of people are lonely. A lot of people are lonely these days. Even in a place like this, people are lonely, right? Uh, some experts are even talking about a pandemic of loneliness in the United States. I know, triggery word, but, but it's useful. A pandemic of loneliness, People are so isolated now. Uh, small towns are shrinking. People are moving more and more to places where they don't know people. Families are spread out. You know, Kids move out and don't come back. Uh, people don't know their neighbors. There's all kinds of reasons for this, but people don't know their neighbors like maybe they have in times past. Social media says, oh, well, I'll fix that for you. I'll bring you all together. How's that working for you? Not so well, right? You know, social media oftentimes has this divisive impact as it drives people apart as much as it manages to bring them together and so there's a lot of forces in in our culture that are isolating people and introducing levels of loneliness that have never been seen before and so there's there's a big hole there a lot of people if you just read the research and even just kind of just begin to talk with people you'll see it there's a big relational hole in a lot of people's lives but there's an opportunity there there's an opportunity there for the good news of Jesus Christ because if the church is intentional, we're in a fantastic position to help people make real connections. Real connections, both with God and with other people, right? You go back to our, you know, connecting real people to the real God. We want to connect people to God by connecting them to each other. And, and so belonging, right? And so many of the things, if you, if you have time to stay for lunch today, you'll be doing priority number three, right? You'll, you'll, be, you'll be connecting with other believers. You'll be belonging to part of the, the family. You're doing it right now as we worship God together. And so that's the kind of thing we want to do. We want to be promoting more and more of that. Well, our passage this morning ends with a postscript. I'm going to cheat and have four points. <laughs> a, pers- a, a, a postscript, and the postscript is about John. It's a a postscript about John. Uh, We actually reach a transition point in the Gospel of Luke here in today's passage, starting with next week's passage, starting with verse 21. All of the emphasis moves to Jesus. Uh, But before Luke moves us on to this this direct emphasis on Jesus, he's got one more thing to tell us about John, and it's that John's ministry, this wonderful ministry we've been reading about, it got him in trouble. It got him in trouble big time. That's verse 18 through 20. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, talking about John, but Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the other evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So, John kept preaching. You know, he didn't quit when he, he pointed to Jesus. He's like, oh, that's it. I'm done. You know, prophet retirement community or whatever. He kept preaching right up until the moment when Herod had him arrested and locked away. See, Herod didn't want to hear it. And we, we actually, Luke doesn't give us a lot about this, this part of John's ministry. The other gospels give us more, but John kind of was speaking truth to power. And he called Herod out in public for, he basically uh, seduced his brother's wife and uh, made him, made her, that's the Herodias, uh, she married him, and and he was a pretty lousy guy in other ways too, which Luke refers to. And, and so Herod, he didn't want to hear what John was bringing. He didn't want to hear that he was a sinner who needed forgiveness. He wanted flattery and false hopes, right? That's what people like him want. John wouldn't play that game, so Herod locked him up. Herod put him in prison. And Luke, again, doesn't give us the details here, but we know from other passages that ultimately, eventually, John... Was beheaded. He was executed because of holding fast. Right? John lost his life because he held fast to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can make the case that John the Baptist is the first Christian martyr. Right? First, certainly the first one who did it. Cog, uh, who knew what he was doing? He was the first Christian martyr, the first person to die for Jesus. Uh, but he was not the last. Many others would follow. Men like Stephen. Uh, men like james peter paul so many others in the early church and down to the centuries and it still happens today even today i just did a quick search on the numbers how many people tens of thousands it's hard to get estimates but tens of thousands of people still every year lose their life because of of jesus christ and countless others are persecuted in so many other ways it's hard it's not it's it's, it's not easy always to follow jesus And that's why it's so important for the church to build for the future. That's why we need to build for the future. That's our our fourth priority that we identified as a board. Why? Because we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what the next 10 years will be like. We don't know if there will be times of peace, and the church has certainly had plenty of those over the centuries, but we don't know if it might be a time of persecution like what John was facing we don't know we don't know the future the the future is inherently unknowable we don't know what struggles what successes what hardships what blessings we don't know what lies ahead and so we are called to build for the future right we do there's there's a mandate here we we do everything we can to build people up in their walk with jesus christ and in their relationship with the lord we build people up we make them we help them grow in jesus it connects to the first three doesn't it uh, you hear me use the word build, you, you might think in terms of physical facility, right? You, you can say, oh, they're going to talk about building program now. Uh, yeah, the physical facility is part of it, right? And our, our building, there are some needed repairs. Uh, folks know that if you're part of this church, you know that. Uh, but, but that's not the main thing we're talking about, right? When we talk about uh, building, it's much bigger than a facility. We're talking about building a community. Any facility improvements, this is a core value for us. Any any updates we do, anything like that that we talk about, it's always in service to the mission. Always, always, always. We're we're building a community. We're building a, a fellowship of believers whose feet are planted on God's word and whose eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to build. A people, a people who belong to him. I want to close with one more quote about uh, the supremacy of Jesus, and then I'll pray. Uh, this one comes from John Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan, back in the 1600s, wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, kind of one of the first, uh, an early novel and a, a deep, uh, deeply devotional work a lot of people have appreciated over the years. Here's Bunyan's thought on the supremacy of Jesus, and then I'll pray. That's such a great reminder. Bunyan says, there's no name so sweet on earth, no name so sweet in heaven as the name of Jesus. His name is life and peace and joy.